Hello and welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and writers from across The Athletic. Coming up today, we'll talk to the winner of The Athletic's Player of the Year Award. Manchester City's Kevin De Bruyne will join us to tell us about his evolution into one of the game's very best. We'll also explain what recent directives from UEFA mean for the resumption of football across Europe with Matt Slater and Rafa Honigstein joins us to detail how football in Germany is planning for a return in May. Now is a great time to subscribe to The Athletic and take advantage of the 90-day free trial. Just go to www.theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman, theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman, and you will get your 90-day free trial. So with the season in limbo, The Athletic held our own awards night for the 2019-20 season and you can head to The Athletic now to see the full list of winners and why our writers voted for them. For the main two awards, Chelsea's Bethany England was named Women's Player of the Year and the Men's Player of the Year was won by Manchester City's Kevin De Bruyne, who is with us now. Hi, Kevin. Congratulations, first of all. Hi, Kevin. Thank you. Good morning. So, Kevin, 16 assists and eight goals personally for you this season. How would you say your game has evolved over, say, the last couple of years? Well, I guess uh, I'm more of a complete player. I know people see me as um, a creative player, but there's a lot of games where I just play like central midfield and I know I've uh, I've got the dynamism in my in my game to go up and down, but I feel like for the sake of the team, I'm doing really well in all compartments, and I feel I've grown as a player. And yeah, all the career, obviously, there's stages, but I, I feel yeah good at what I'm doing, and I feel comfortable. So if I said to you now, because we love labels in football, don't we? So you know, some people are holding <laughs> midfielders, or they play as yeah. a ten, they do this, they do that. If I asked you to, to give me your position, would you just simply say central midfielder? Yeah, I don't think I play as a DM. Uh, I don't think I play as an attacking midfielder. It's somewhere in, in between, I think people would say the box-to-box before. But I think these days with the way football is played, it's, it's more about covering spaces than just the position. So it just depends what other teams are doing, to be honest. Kevin, we always talk about players that current players model themselves on looked up to growing up is there anyone that you looked up to when you were a kid and also who you style your game on now or is it just the feel that you have for your own game the conversations you have with your two coaches at club and international level well when I was really young like about seven eight years old I played like a a strike and I always it was always uh, Michael Owen of Liverpool I played (laughs) in the similar style I was really small I only grow when I was like 15 16 years old Uh, but later on I just like to see football not something personally and in the end I, I try to be uh unique in what I what I can do I try to take uh, little things of other players and try to implement it in, in my gameplay. But I enjoy, enjoy football in general and not like the persons, to be honest. Is there anything you work on in particular? If I've had to say to you, what, what's the one thing that you work on in training as an individual more than any other? What would it be and why would you do that? To be honest, the, mostly in training, we retrain tactics. I think one of the main aspects that I, that I learned uh, the last three or four years is, is mentally prepare myself to be 
ready for every battle that I need to do. I try to never switch off, giving myself the confidence that I can make the difference or, or be the best that I can be on the pitch. And I think that that fills the hunger in me to to be the best and uh that that helped me quite a lot to be honest have you done that then who who's helped you on the on the mental side of it and when you say never switch off you don't mean never never switch off do you you must must switch off sometime surely we switch off but yeah during the season even like i i know people are like oh when they're home they're home but you know everything i try to do is in lifestyle to to be the best player there's obviously moments where you can switch off but obviously you look at the right timing you know even to have a night out or whatever uh i do it of course but like um when i'm in a playing mode you know you can just feel it when you're going from game to game there's no no time to rest yeah you need to prepare yourself to be ready so would you even so if if there's a game on on a say you've played on the saturday and the monday night game is on are you watching that with an eye to when you might play one of those two teams next? Well, to be quite honest, I don't watch that much right. football. I think I can quickly understand how teams play, but uh, when there's a game on and I've, I've got nothing to do, but it's not like I need to watch these games. I think we, we, we do enough tactics, see enough videos of teams yeah. to, to know what they do. No, that's really interesting because you hear many players saying that they're watching games all the time and, and it sounds like you're quite the opposite. And you, you do have your hands full because you've got a young family as well. And so that must allow you to switch off a little bit. I was selfishly quite pleased that we managed to honour you with our award before the PFA did. But in, in truth, that's a, that's a shock really because you've had such a, a successful time so far. And I was just looking back through the PFA awards at how relatively little Manchester City have been represented. You've not won the main award, neither has Sergio Aguero. You've both been in the team of the year once and twice respectively. Do you think Man City are underrepresented in in the awards? And if so, why? Is it because you're more of a, a team with less spectacular individuals or is it just not as fashionable? Is there any reason? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't think a lot of people feel underappreciated, to be honest. I, I think that there's been chances, obviously, that, that uh, some of us players could have won, won the award. But don't know how the voters are thinking about, about football and what they are taking into account. I think two years ago I could have won it, but I can understand why Mo Salah won it also. And maybe this year, it's maybe a chance for me to win. I, I, I don't know. I think I've got a nice chance to, to win some awards this year. But, you know, there's some other players who had a great season. And, you know, I, I, I'm not really occupied about why or why not. You know, it's part of the game and everybody has a different view. And I think that's, that's the nice thing of, of football, that nobody thinks the same way. And there's a lot of different playing styles and views and that makes it good for me. And speaking of different views, when, when your national team boss says in an interview last week that you've revolutionised the playmaker role, how do you feel about that? Well, I think whenever people say positive things, it, it fills me with some pride. I think I'm, I'm getting quite good at... You know, when people give you criticism or speak negative about you to push it aside. But <laughs> e- even even when you get positives, you get it in, but you don't take it in too much. You know, you still, even if people talk good, you still have to go on. But people on the pitch don't care 
when you play them so you just go on with it and try to maintain the highest level as possible it's really weird isn't it human nature how you can have 99 people praise you or one person criticize you and you often hang on to that one piece of criticism and it's how much that fires you but also how much it doesn't bring you down you've got to learn to to lose the criticism haven't you yeah, and I think these days with social media, it's it goes up and down a lot. If you play a good game, your social media is full of praise, and then you play a game where maybe you're a little bit anonymous, or your team, even you can perform well, but your team loses, and then, you know, you're the worst player in the world. So, you know, I think people of these days are used to having the ups and downs in football, where maybe before it was a little bit more easier, I guess, because you, you hear what people say, but it's not as much as with the social media era, I guess. One thing I've really noticed about you and read about you and seen on documentaries and various other interviews is is your will to win and how angry you can get if, if things aren't going your way. Some of the great Premier League midfielders of the past, like Keane and Vieira, Gerrard and Scholes, they all had that drive, but also a bit of needle and aggression about them. Is that something you need to have, even as a creative player in the Premier League, that other side to you? I think the will to win is what you are born with. Uh, you can get it a little bit later on, but I guess it's it's, it's more like a feeling, it's a, a fire that's inside you. From the moment I'm on the pitch, I feel like I'm a different person for 90 minutes. And then when the game is over, it can maybe last five minutes or half an hour but after that it's quickly turning back again and you can be friends with whoever but 90 minutes it's the enemy and you just want to win and do whatever it takes so kevin 16 assists and eight goals four short of the record set by thierry Henry, who you worked with of course on the belgium national team so is there a little bit of um, motivation there to chase that target down well, uh, to be honest, I feel like I've been on 17. I know they took one away from me from Arsenal. <laughs> I, I, There's I, that streak. I, 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 don't, I don't know why they did it. I still don't understand it. Well, I always uh, joked about it with, with Henri and the national team. Uh, I, even I think it was in Vinny's testimonial this year. I saw him and I, I had a quick start. I said, I'm, I'm coming for you this year. But <laughs> You know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, I think, you know, to have 16 assists is, is, is really nice. And, you know, it speaks really well for creative players, me. But if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. We, we still go on. And, you know, honestly, when, when you get something, it fills you with pride. Uh, because I had it in Germany and it's nice to see you you broke some records it means a lot i love the fact that on the one hand you're quite laid back about it but on the other hand you know that you should really have seven you should really have seven <laughs> fiercely competitive. it's quite a good balance there kevin yeah you know i think everybody know gets the statistics you know well when you're playing it doesn't doesn't really matter but you know in the end of the year it's the way how people look also a little bit i think I'm luckily to be in a position where in the midfield you can do other stuff and still be good. But when you're a striker, obviously, when you don't score goals, uh, you, you get measured by it. Just one tiny thing, Kevin, and listening you to you speak there with such sort of authority, leadership in a way, it made me think this was the first season that Manchester City had been without Vincent Kompany. Uh, after he departed did you feel you needed to change did you need to take on more responsibility on and off the pitch at Manchester City I think I did a little bit it's not necessarily always on the pitch I think on the pitch everybody has his characteristics and 
responsibility. You can't have one, two players who do it. I'm never going to be somebody like Vinny. I think he's grown up to be that way since he came as a young player. But I think I've took on more responsibility and, you know, try to speak in, in, in a way for the team that is good and positive, even with everything that's going on and uh, the people trust me so uh, I think I've, I've done quite well Kevin you've given us a lot of time this morning thank you very much for, for that and also thank you for the insight into your craft as well it's much appreciated no problem it's a pleasure thank you thank you very much bye bye now last week UEFA circulated a press release it had a really uh, catchy title which just made you want to read more executive committee approves guidelines on eligibility for participation to UEFA competitions uh, so you see that and you think I know a man who's going to be uh, yeah but you might think that but we both know a man who's going to be really interested in that and whose juices will have been flowing as soon as that dropped in his he inbox he lives for it Hello, Matt Slater. Oh, what's wrong with that press release? It's brilliant. It was a masterpiece. <laughs> were there interesting bits in it that that were more oh, interesting, certainly, oh, than the title? Lots of interesting things. It's a bit of a dance that UEFA and all the, um, the major players are, are doing at the moment as they just try and get their heads around this remarkable situation that we find ourselves in. They are trying to balance competitive integrity issues, financial issues, potential legal headaches. They have an awful lot on their plate. What we are seeing, I think, is there was definitely an initial shock where just no one seemed to know what was going on and we had plans and ideas being leaked every other day. And, and I think people literally were trying ideas out. Tell a journo, have a word, let's see how this one plays out. That, I think, has slowed down I wonder if it will come back because it's a perfectly legitimate way of, of, of kind of like doing some market research for free isn't it but what UEFA have to do and I think from the beginning I've thought they're the most important organisation in this in many ways because they do bridge club and country in a way that FIFA doesn't and um, they are their season if you like was interrupted you know, the European club competitions were interrupted in the same way the Premier League competition was interrupted. And also, it has had to move its key tournament out of this summer, you know, Euro 2020. So UEFA's always had this problem. It's where the richest clubs are based. It's where the richest players are based. But it's a big, broad range. It's a big family, like all the football family is, and was very much in the crosshairs in terms of an organisation that, you know, had, had its own financial issues to, to, to sort out. And I think what this press release is, it's, it's the latest development in its thinking. And you can kind of track what it's been doing and saying how it's responded to things that leagues have tried to do. The, the good example, I think, for this particular saga is this story is, um, is Belgium seems to be sort of kind of moving ahead of everyone. Well, OK, look, if, if this is a situation in terms of social distancing and this is what our government is telling us, we are going to call the season right now. Here, UEFA, here's our list of people we think should be going into your club competitions ne you know, next season. UEFA at that point wasn't ready for that, just wasn't ready. It was, whoa, 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 we're not having that. Let's see if we can all move together. We can't have Germany doing one thing, Italy doing another. It will be chaos. What I think this press release reveals is, to some extent, that UEFA is acknowledging now, we're a little bit powerless here. You know, we, we're not going to dictate to anybody, any government, about how this finishes how, how we deal with this let's set some guidelines 
let's try and apply some very general criteria. If you're going to end your seasons, we really want you to do it on sporting merit, and we can carry on and talk about what sporting merit means. Let, let's not do anything rash. Sporting merit is the watchword here. And if, when you've decided to do what you're doing, we'd like you to finish if you can, but if you can't, you really, really can't because your government's saying you can't, or because even trying to will bankrupt people. So if you can't, let's have a conversation about sporting merit and let's let's see your list of entrants for next year's Europa League and Champions League. And, and we'll go from there. If, if we don't like your list of entrants, uh, um, potential entrants for next season's competitions, we may well block them. We may well say no. So that, I think, was the, 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 the exciting bit of, of, of their thinking last week. Matt, do you think that UEFA have gained too much sort of public importance in all of this? The point you sort of touch upon there is that they don't really have jurisdiction over conversations between the leagues and their governments. They only come into the picture when it comes down to European qualification. They've made their big move you could say controversially, by uh, reallocating the Euros to next summer with dates announced straight away. But is it now time that UEFA sort of step aside and let everybody else get on with their own matters? That, that is a, that's a fair point and it, it is being made, as you know, as, as you know David. Um, I think what I will say in UEFA's defence is if they don't try and get everybody on the same page, if they don't try and bring some coherence to this, then who will? Whilst I understand the argument that just back off, all right, you've done your thing with Euro 2020. We have bigger fish to fry here. We've got our own pyramid to worry about. We need to finish our competition. We have our contracts to fulfill or go to court over. We have money to trickle down in our pyramid. Thanks very much, UEFA. Just leave us alone for a bit, okay? But football is interdependent. Nothing exists in a vacuum in football. If you let member associations start deciding for their for purely local reasons, you know what do we do about European club competition, which let's not forget makes money for everybody, and that money might not be so important for the Premier League. I think it is actually is, but let's say let's pretend for a minute that it's not at all important. It's very important for medium and small nations, mid-tier leagues. The money does filter down, and it's hugely significant. Even Europa League money is hugely significant for lots of clubs. So UEFA does has a role, have a role to play here, and that's before we even start thinking about the, the, the international picture, which, again, might not be so important here. Well, I, I mean, I would beg to differ there, but there is an argument. You hear it from you know, club people. It's not so important. But it is really important in lots of countries. 45 of the 55 members would, would be taking, the UEFA members would be taking a huge chunk of their cash, of their revenue, as, as a sort of basic handout from UEFA for entering things like the National, the Nations League, for entering Euro 2020 qualifiers. That was the other thing that was in the press release last week, that they were emptying their reserves. They were forwarding the money that, that clubs have, they get in terms of compensation for releasing players to play in European international games. So it's an interdependent world. And I think UEFA has an obligation. And if it's not, then who? The final couple of sentences of your first answer, when you said UEFA could think, you know, if we don't like the teams you put forward for our competitions, then dot, 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 
Uh, would <laughs> Here's where the cynical part of me kicks in, as it always does on this podcast. Would I be naive to think that all of this is just about dealing with this current situation? Or am I being incredibly harsh on UA for there? Because when I hear that... <sighs> yeah. When I hear that, bearing in mind previous discussions that we have had about how big clubs want to shape the Champions League more in, in their favour... Things like if we don't like who you're putting forward for our competition, that that just worries me slightly. Hmm. Look, I love a conspiracy theory, and I. <laughs> but um, I'm going to I'm going to swerve that one. I, I, uh, <laughs> Very no, good. I, no, Very I good. have. I have because no, because I I think it's impossible to know. Actually, in it fairness, might be isn't a it? tad unfair yeah. that one. You know what's been going on. And uh, the European Club Association are sort of the, the you know the key player here, desperate to reform the Champions League. Basically, we understand there's been this sort of debate about European Super League style move. Okay, that's that was going on pre-lockdown, and will come back at some point, as it does every five, six, seven years. I think this particular decision, if you like, or set of guidelines, is really about how we deal with this season and next season. And I think there was a key little phrase in there that I perhaps should have mentioned. If we don't like your list, we, we could be sending it back to you. And there was a little line in there about public perception of unfairness, which I think is really important. I think the Dutch have gone ahead. So this is really interesting. So this, this statement came out on Thursday. We knew the Dutch, like the Belgians and one or two other leagues, were in this very particular situation where their government had effectively put down a hard date. You know, we're talking a lot in the UK about, can we have some more dates, please? You know, can we have a sort of, you know, roadmap out of this? Well, the Dutch Prime Minister did on Wednesday. He said, I think it might have been Tuesday or Wednesday, I can't remember now. But he said, look, there's going to be no mass gatherings, i.e. sport, you know, top flight sport, until September 1st. You know, it's just not happening. Now, at that point, the Dutch, because everyone's economics are a little bit different, sort of thought, well, you know, we've had a look at this and behind closed doors isn't really going to work for us. Um, our government's made a pretty firm you know, ruling there on, on, on gathering. So we're going to call time now. Uh, they had a vote, the vote in terms of how they did it. Do we go points per game? Do we do pro-rel, pro promotion and relegation? What do we do? Do we do sort of restructuring? All the various options that will come into play, I think, for every league now. It, there was no consensus. So the Dutch FA made a decision. They put the phone call into UEFA the day after on Friday and said, guys, look, we've, we've seen your guidelines. You know, thanks very much for um, for acknowledging that member associations can make make their own calls based on their you know their own set of circumstances and the conversations they have with the government. We've done all that. Here's our list. Here's our list. It's the top five right now in our top flights. Now, I think we're now going to have this very interesting examination of that phrase: public perception of unfairness. Because the top five, I think it's Ajax and uh, Alkmaar were the interesting two because they are one and two tied on goal difference with eight or nine to play. Alkmaar have done the double over Ajax. Ajax are in top spots. Alkmaar also have the wind in their sails. Ajax, prior to lockdown, were unravelling a little bit. So there's already an interesting one there. So the Dutch have said, we're not, do we're not doing any champions. This, this season didn't really happen in terms of a, a winner. But here are our top five. Third and fourth were fine order, and can't remember now. It wasn't they were fine, if you like. There was no sort of there were gaps. But fifth to sixth, fifth team was William the second, and they were three points ahead of Utrecht, who had a game in hand. So Utrecht have missed out on European competition on the basis of having a game in hand. 
And, and to make matters worse, Utrecht have made the Dutch Cup final, having beaten Ajax in the semi-final. Great game. And they're playing final. Now, the winner of that game would normally get a Europa League slot. So Utrecht have gone from having two shots at Europa League to just finding out, sorry, guys, it's all over. Going forward, what are UEFA... I mean, how often are they going to meet? How often are they going to revisit their message? Do you know? I, I don't know for sure, but I think if we look at the evidence of the last six weeks or so, we've been hearing from UEFA almost every week, every, let's say, 10 days. And that's not that surprising because there's been kind of news, hasn't there, almost every week. You know, uh, I think you're going to talk to Rafa next, aren't you, about what the Bundesliga are doing. Hugely, hugely significant. I, I think that's the most important thing that's happening in European football. Perhaps even world sport. A big league in a big country that has had, you know, you know a big coronavirus issue is about to restart their most popular sport behind closed doors. Now, if they can do it, if the Germans can do it, and everyone's watching, well, suddenly the debate changes a little bit. Certainly for the bigger leagues, and I'm, I'm also talking about the American sports leagues. If you can pull off that uh, sterile environment experiment, that sterile environment, everyone using clean, uh, maybe a number of clean stadiums and, and doing it all behind closed doors and making it basically a made-for-TV event. If you can at least do that to one finish this season, which satisfies contracts, which does do it on sporting merit. Now, you can have arguments about, oh, it's not the same, there's no fans, blah, blah, blah. But I think we can agree when there's a, a set of bad options, that's the best. Now, if the Germans can do it, great. My God, the size of relief around the world because Major League Baseball will be doing it. NBA will be doing it to finish their playoffs. The Premier League will be doing it. La Liga will be doing it. Now, UEFA, I think, is watching all of this. Now, at the same time, UEFA's message, central message has been clear. If you can finish, please finish. Please do. And I think there's an important sort of subplot to that message, and it's one that I think the Premier League are very aware of as well. If and when we have to go to court with people asking for their money back, we better make sure we at least look like we have explored every single avenue and that we really, really, really try to fulfill that contract. So I think we are going to hear from UEFA. I think they're having conversations all the time. We know they set up working groups. I couldn't tell you when the next thing is coming. It wouldn't surprise me if we hear something again from them this week. If not this week, almost certainly next week. So, Matt, you've talked about the European front. What about Project Restart, as the Premier League are privately calling it? They're sort of planning on how football is going to return in, in England uh, in the top flight, as opposed to when. What is Project Restart looking like? I'm told that it's it's very advanced and it's along similar lines to Germany and they'll be studying Germany and Italy, etc. But where are we on the Premier League's front? I mean, I, I have long felt that... Um, the Premier League would go would go first and would drive this conversation here first because they have the most to lose, they have the most to gain, all of that. They are so clearly the top of this uh, the tree here in our country that it, it, it's 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 ridiculous. There, uh, you know, I, I was quite amused by some of the reporting over the weekend that these sort of government conversations are involving the ECB. I, I love cricket. I'm desperate for cricket to restart. But the idea that football is going to be, I mean, I imagine they got someone in that room with a notebook just sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, cheers, guys. Just wanted to be across what you lot are doing. Um, we've been on this for three or four weeks, you know. By all means, cricket, rugby, rugby league, athletics, cycling, good, good. You get round and have a little good old talk about saving your seasons because for a lot of these sports, the season hasn't started, really, 
Football has a slightly different issue. One, it's so much more complicated because of the money involved. But its season was interrupted. Its season was nearly finished. That's that. It makes it even more legally concerning for football. This we're so close to finishing it, but we're not quite close enough to call it. You know, if we start making decisions about promotion and relegation and who goes to European competition or not, wow. You know, we could be in real trouble here. So, Project Restart. I I know they have been on. Their best people have been on it for three or four weeks, and. I am led to believe the German experiment is, is crucial, absolutely crucial. If Germany cannot start, and we know they're training, you know the Italians are going back this week, if Germany cannot restart, or I would say even worse, well, it's not worse, it's the same really, has to start and then stop, that's it. That's it for 2019-20. For I, I, just, I just cannot see, in terms of the compromising of next season, if there's going to be a next season, but, 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 you know, the compromising of next season and the kicking the can down the road. I just think if Germany cannot prove you can play safely and the public crucially, crucially, the public like it and are comfortable with it, which means the public health authority is comfortable with it, which means the government's comfortable with it, which means people are watching, which means social media is not exploding on day one because someone hurts their leg. All of that, all of that. If Germany can't do that, 2019-20 is over. Thank you for that, Matt. And as Matt mentioned several times, a lot of leagues will now look at Germany and the Bundesliga to see what they do and how they cope and how and when they resume. Let's talk to the Athletics uh, German football writer, Raphael Honigstein. Uh, Raphael, does it feel like everything is on Germany then at the moment? I think we're more concerned with getting this done domestically than uh, you know the symbolic effect it might have on the rest of, of uh, European football. Um, the, the problem is that everybody's kind of waiting for things to fall into place. The league have put this concept out, which uh, you know has been widely reported, but it's not their decision to make. They have to wait for the uh, federal states who have the jurisdiction as part, far as health is concerned, in line with some advice, of course, from the uh, from the government of Chancellor Merkel. And the latest we're hearing from Germany is that Thursday's meeting, where a lot of people were hoping that we might get the green light for the Bundesliga to come back in May, will not actually make that decision just yet, but defer that to the first week of May. So uh, as things stand, and this is a very dynamic process and a lot of variables, I don't think that the 9th of May, which was ever always going to be a little bit pushing it, is no longer viable. I think mid-May, maybe 23rd of May is, is now a likely scenario. Uh, David's spoken earlier with Matt about how the project restart when it comes to the Premier League is, isn't looking at a date, but is looking at, logistics and how on earth this might be achieved if it happens presumably those steps are fairly advanced within the Bundesliga setup are they? Well they like to think so they like to think that they're ready for the day x as Christian Seifert at CEO has called it so whenever the uh, the local governments um, say it is safe for you to come back under the conditions that you've lined out the Bundesliga would be able to turn around quite quickly. But of course, there are some some caveats. First of all, you need at least two weeks of proper training, uh, maybe 10 days as a very minimum. With proper training, I mean real training rather than just having five or six people on the same pitch 
um, you know, playing Hollywood balls to each other over 60 meters, but actual tackles, all the kind of stuff that you need to be properly match fit. Um, we don't know when they'll be allowed to do that. There was talk of maybe this week, but uh, I think that's still a little bit uh, away. And then um, there's a big question of when football comes back, what kind of fixture list will they have to put together? Will they try to sort of rush this through as quickly as possible, having lots of midweek fixtures? Or will they try to be as normal as possible, playing on the on the weekends and then putting in these midweek games a little bit later on when maybe people are more used to it? Because they are very dependent on the TV rights companies um, giving them the last payment and that's why the Bundesliga is in a much more precarious situation than the Premier League, who have already been paid up domestically. Uh, and all they have to fear about the inverted commas is TV companies clawing back the money. In the Bundesliga, the money hasn't been paid yet. Uh, some of it will be paid, but with a proviso that games start again in May, which uh, makes it a much more pressing concern for them to get going again. Yeah, further to Mark's point there, there's a document that many of us have seen which summarises the detail of the DFL's plan and it covers areas such as personnel restrictions, the number of people who would attend a stadium and we've heard a lot of that in the Premier League over the last couple of days, a maximum of around uh, 300 people, hygiene rules, uh, very detailed training and accommodation, behaviour in private life, make of that what you will, Um, behaviour in the event of a corona infection. It then goes on to talk about the TV money, as Raf mentions, and also um, each club will have a corona team. So it's very sort of in-depth planning. But as Raf says, it, it will come down to the government. And uh, w- one point that I've I've just picked up on f- from other reports, Raf, is that um, certain German clubs are discussing the idea of not having relegation because sporting integrity has already been lost. Do you know anything on that? I haven't seen anything about that in the in the Bundesliga because the plan is still to to finish the season. In fact, I think that because of the TV rights situation, I don't think that stopping the season at all is is really seen as viable. Um, of course, if we see that you know half the teams start testing positive, or there's even one high profile case which then sends everybody in quarantine and you games can't continue for a couple of weeks. At that point, I think we might have to look at a situation where the, the games will be stopped. And then I guess uh, avoiding relegation would be would be a way forward. But don't forget, the big issue in, uh, in the Bundesliga too is that you have two huge clubs in Hamburg and Stuttgart who want to come back. And the league by and large actually want these teams to come back because they drive revenue, they drive TV rights, subscriptions. Um, this is a... a not a straightforward, you know, um, discussion to be had because the the benefit of having relegation and promotion might outweigh um, sort of the, the 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 problems you might avoid by by voiding or by by stopping the league, as it were. So it's it's very complicated, but the league remain hopeful that they have enough time to finish it. And don't forget the June. Um, the June deadline in Germany is not being seen as as hard and fast and as important. I think there's a lot of people who realize that if it means continuing into July, mid-July, maybe even the end of July, that's something that we can do and shouldn't stop us from finishing the season. Do you know why, given your experience of both German and English football, why, why that June the 30th isn't seen as as much of a sticking point 
in Germany as it appears to be with some Premier League clubs here? I can only deduct that the main reason for that is that the German clubs feel that the, the sort of the cliffhanger issue with the contracts is a minor one mm. compared to the TV money not coming in. So, you know, if it means sitting down with, with players who might have to extend for another month or maybe just two weeks, I think that's something that they see much of a less problematic issue. And this is also a view shared by Mesut Özil's agent, by the way, Akut Sogut, who was on the Stahlcast pod last week. He thinks that uh, fears of, of sort of contract chaos are overblown in light of the real numbers of, of players affected. And the German clubs are much more worried of not finishing the season rather than the contractual situation being complex. Does the general um, uh, health situation or even cultural situation in Germany make this, uh, the return of the Bundesliga, maybe easier to imagine than here at the moment? And, and I suppose what I'm boiling that down to is is tests. I mean, if players are going to need to be tested regularly, then key workers are going to have to have access to tests because, for example, as you know, in, in the UK, if key workers weren't being tested but footballers were, there would be an outcry. But the situation is different in Germany. The situation is different because tests, um, the capacity for tests yeah. is, is nearing a million soon and we haven't had this this problem. There are still logistical problems so if you you know, live in a village, if you live far away from where the nearest testing situation, testing center is, you might not be able to, to get tested for logistical reasons and the capacity are not being, not being used. So on a rational, on a sort of logical and, and numerical level, there is no big deal. But of course, football still gets put on the defensive when there are certain people working in care homes, for example, can't get regular tests. But you know that the guy who's going to do the tests for uh, Thiago and Lewandowski is just going to drive up the road to deliver it to the clinic in Munich. So there is a sort of a moral um, dilemma attached to this. At the same time, I think that the Bundesliga and, and Germany as a whole feel that as we move into May and the lockdown gets uh, gets lessened, gets, uh, gets looser, people will become more comfortable with normality coming back and with some companies... Um, trying to do everything that they can to to get back into business. Uh, one interesting comparison made from Christian Seifert was that he was saying he knows of lots of companies who want to do similar things, who want to secure testing capacity for their, their employees so that they know they can go back to being in an office or in a factory producing cars. And these are all things that by the time the Bundesliga will come back in mid-May, maybe late May, I think the whole of Germany will be slightly more comfortable with as they are at this moment in time. OK, Raf, thanks very much for joining us. We will talk soon. Thank you. You're very welcome. See you guys. Thanks, Raf. That's it from myself and David. Now is a great time to subscribe to The Athletic because you'll get advantage of the 90-day free trial. So just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Thanks for listening.